This is the time in our service when we preach to you. Our great aim here is to take the words that you have heard read and to say them to you in a way that will help you to understand them up here and believe them in here and then have them move out of your hands in your life. So I'm preaching to your mind but also to your heart that there might be a change in you in the way that you live. That's our aim for preaching together. I apologize that it's 57 degrees in here right now, but the heating system was totally off for the last 48 hours, so it's been cranking since 7. It will get there. I will not be offended if you need to slide over to the heat and just slide your hands on any one of these six radiators during this time, but this is not a new normal. It will be in the 70s in here on Sundays to come. We're going to work this psalm from the inside out, from the center out. If you want to just stick with me as I preach and read the text on the screen, totally fine. If you've got a Bible app or a Bible and you want to look at Psalm 126, we're going to go from the very sweet middle out. Anyone in here ever eaten a Twinkie before? Are you still allowed to admit that in in American foodie culture? How did you eat that Twinkie? Anybody break that thing open and just suck out some of the cream in the very center to begin? Only Lori or a ring ding, have you done that? You want to do that with a Tootsie Pop, but you can't do it, right? You got to do some work to get to the center. Starting at the sweet center and moving out. Sometimes we do that. This is what... uh, my family does when we go to the Basketball Hall of Fame. I don't know if you've been there, but on the first floor is the court itself, and there's 30 brand new, perfectly filled NBA leather basketballs, indoor balls, and they will let you shoot around on that court for as long as you want. But when you arrive at the Hall of Fame, they put you on an elevator, and they make you ride to the top floor first. They want you to start up there in the ring of fame and then work your way down. Okay, so what does the Cruz family do when we get off the elevator at the top right away? Run down those staircases down to the floor. We spend the first hour enjoying the actual real point of the game of basketball, which is playing. We run right to the biggest thing. And then we make our way up to the top and the second floor, and the mezzanine. But the heart of why we go is to enjoy the sport ourselves. That's why I want to preach this text to you. I want to go to the middle, to the heart of it, and then work out from there to the, the other pieces that inform how did we get to this sweet center together. All right, let me pray for us, and we'll do that. Father, you are great and greatly to be praised. Billions of people around this planet have paused in these 24 hours to worship Jesus on the day that he rose from the dead. I am so sorry that the 27,000 people in Melrose are not with us or in a church somewhere this morning, but we are here, Lord, because you have made us glad. And I pray that our hearts would grasp what that means, what Merry Christmas means together today that we might step out of here and live with the joy of the Father and the joy of the Son and the joy of the Spirit on the streets of these cities for your glory. 
Help us to hear and understand your word together, I pray. Amen. All right, um, let's start by talking about some different communities and the default mood of those communities. I'm trying to get your heart to feel the defining mood of a different community. So talk to me about a college dorm room the week of final exams. What is the mood of that people, place, and community? What words come to mind? Stressed? Anxious? Sleepless? Depressed? The summary thought might be, hey, we are stressed. That's, that's what defines this place right now. Talk to me about a college dorm room 24 hours after the last final exam has been taken. Now what is the defining mood of that place? Maybe you're still depressed. <laughs> Relief. It's over for good or for bad. We are relieved. That's the defining mood. Uh, very dark, dark example here. Do you remember in Cleveland, there was a man who had abducted three different women and imprisoned them for years, and they never left the house, and he assaulted them over and over and over again? When you heard them tell that story, they would say, day after day, we were terrified. It was like a horror movie on repeat. We were terrified. That defined our existence there until the day that we escaped. How about a One Direction concert with a bunch of middle school students? Hysterical? Delirious? It depends if you're asking the parents who took them or the kids who were taken. We are wild. How about the seventh floor of MGH Cancer Center? What's the mood of that place? It's awful, right? Sorrow. We are sad. What about Jesus' church? What about the people of God? What is the definitive mood in the life of a church? Depending what churches you have been on, you may answer that question differently. For some, it might be exhaustion. There's a performance thing going on in the life of the church, and we're trying to do, 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 do. And if you asked us the default mood, it is, we are spent. We are spent. In other churches, it might be boredom. We've just been going through the motions of church for years. You want to know the definitive center of this church? We're bored. That's, that's the truth. Some churches get wounded. It's just a very hurt place. Legalism in the way that the church life happens or sin in their pastors that just rolls down onto them. And they would say, you know, we are jaded. Just week after week after week. That's the default thing going on here. We are jaded. What this psalm is going to invite us into, what I hope to help you to see, is that the definitive mood of Jesus' church is not supposed to be any of those things, not exhausted, not bored, 
not sullen, not jaded. It's supposed to be glad. We are called to be a people of realistic but indomitable joy, gladness together. That is the truth that sits at the very center of this psalm. So I'm going to go to the very middle with you now. The people of God would sing this psalm of ascent as they made their way to Jerusalem to worship each year. And here's the center of the psalm. We are glad. We are glad. That is supposed to be the defining mood of our church. I don't know if you've ever heard of the message. It's an it's a tr- English translation of the Bible. Um, it was done by an American pastor. Uh, there's some reasons not to love the message. In fact, it's not really a translation. It's more of a paraphrase. It's trying to give you a feel in American vernacular for the words of Scripture. Sometimes he swings and misses. Sometimes he swings and nails it. And in his translation paraphrase, he gives a perfect spirit of the words. Here's how he says these words. Here's how he translates them. I want you to feel this. We are a happy people. We are a happy people. Now this does not mean that there is never confusion or exhaustion or even jadedness in the life of a church. We might share some of those things together for a season, for a day, for a year. But the ground note, the one that informs everything else, the one that threads its way through all the other moods that may attend our life together, because it is the mood that will endure for ever. The center of gravity for us, our default mode is this, joy. We are a happy people. Why? Where does this joy come from? Is it because our church only draws those bubbly, cheery, giggly, up high kind of personalities? Is it because it's all Callie Cruises and Jess Erickson's and Leah Brown's? Is that why we're a happy people? No? I mean, we adore those saints, but that's not why this place is happy because we're all wired the same way. Is it because we've got Cane's Donuts in the foyer and Starbucks coffee on tap with shots of caramel available for everyone? We could do that. Do you know that Cane's Donuts is coming to Route 1 by where the old miniature golf course was? <laughs> that could bring a measure of joy, but is it, is it the music and the mood and the feel of this place that we are manufacturing joy and smiles? Is it because nobody in here has got any troubles in their life? Is it because everybody's bills are paid at Seven Mile Road? Is it because everybody's body is perfectly fit and perfectly healthy? Is it because all of our relationships are intact? 
Is it because all of our children are perfectly obedient all of the time? Is it because all of our bosses happen to be easygoing? Is it because all, all of our investments are soaring all of the time? No. Our joy is not anchored in either our circumstances or our performances. It's anchored in what God has done for us in the gospel. Here's how the psalmist says it. Now we're inching a little bit bigger at the center of the psalm. He says, The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. In other words, the joy of this church is grounded in the objective activity of God in the world and in our lives. This is the joy that we celebrate at Christmas together, that the birth of Jesus happened as it was promised, the advent of the Messiah, the incarnation of the Son of God to save sinners. These are some of the great things that God has done for us. What is the definitive adjective that we put on the front end of the word Christmas? What's that adjective? Merry Christmas. Why? What is it that makes Christmas merry? It is not primarily the happy trappings of the season. I love the lights. I love the gifts. I love the Christmas songs. They start on November 15th nowadays. I love them. I love the meals. I love the quintuple header of NBA basketball that they have on now. Starts at noon, doesn't end until 2 in the morning. I love the days off of work. But none of these is what makes Christmas merry. What makes Christmas merry is the truth of what happened in Bethlehem, that the one true and living God was acting redemptively in the birth of this baby, and that this baby would grow to be a holy man who lived the perfect life for us, and then he really died a brutal and atoning death for us, and then he really rose from the dead for us, and he really has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And he really is readying for a second coming in which all wrongs will be made right and all brokenness will be put back together and we will be swept back into a new heaven and a new earth where the only mood that there will ever be is joy. This is why Christmas is merry. Christmas is like this rock that was thrown into the lake of the brokenness of this world, and once that rock hit, the ripple effect was our salvation. The Lord has done something great for us. This is why we are glad. I don't know if you know it or not, but those are fighting words in our culture. 
to speak of Christmas as in a category, not of personal religious preference, but of truth. Paul Rauschenbusch, anybody ever heard of him? Religious writer for the Huffington Post, which is like the English version of the New York Times. It's up to you to decide whether it is news or propaganda. It's one of those newspapers. He wrote a column called, Happy Holidays versus Merry Christmas. The last thing that ever needs to be said about it. So this was his column. And basically, this was the, the thing that he wrote. He said, I have solved the problem of what to say at Christmas time. What we need to do is just recognize that, and he was writing to Americans, the United States of America is no longer a Christian place. And so let's understand that everyone has their own preferred way to celebrate the holidays. And let's just be aware of that, wake up to that fact, and let's just affirm each other in our celebrations. So if you are talking to a Christian, what do you say? You too cold to answer? Merry Christmas. If you are talking to a Jew, what do you say? Happy Hanukkah. If you are talking to someone from the African diaspora, Africans who are now living in the United States, what do you say? Joyous, happy Kwanzaa. If you're talking to a neo-pagan, a new American pagan, what do you say? Does anyone know? Winter solstice is what they would celebrate in this season. So you would say swimming winter solstice. If you were talking to a humanist, what would you say? Have you seen they've coined the new phrase human light for their holiday celebration? So you would say happy human light. You get the point of what he was saying? There, I fixed it. That was the end of his column. And I read it and I was thinking, well, yes, and no. So there is something very important in what he is saying that we need to receive together, that being graced by Jesus, called by Jesus to live in a pluralistic society, it is a good thing to be disposed with respect toward our neighbors, with kindness, with deference, absolutely, no questions asked. No one should understand that posture more than Christians, right? Uh, America has religious freedom. Why? Not because it was founded by atheists or by humanists or by Muslims, because it was founded by Christians. That's why it has freedom of religion. We understand that you have to give people freedom to live according to their conscience, that you cannot legislate matters of the heart or force people to believe a creed of truth. We should be the most respectful and kind and deferential citizens in these cities, in this part of Boston, because we are Christians, yes. And yet there is something foundationally wrong with his solution to the problem. It's untenable because he is miscategorizing what Christmas is. He's forcing Christmas to fit a category that Christmas can never 
fit. Christmas is not just another option on the potential buffet of preferred religious traditions. Has anybody been to Kelly's Roast Beef lately? So they don't give you your drink anymore. They send you to this machine that you go up to and it's got an LCD display. And now it's going to take you 45 minutes to figure out what in the world do I want to drink today? Have you not been there yet? I mean, 276 potential drinks that you can have and you're working way through, man, what do I want today? And what am I guilty about? And is there sugar in this? And who's watching me select the Mountain Dew? Like that whole thing happens when you go get a drink at Kelly's now. The one thing that the machine is saying to you is all these drinks are basically the same, so just pick your preferred drink. It's a buffet. Whichever, it's going to have the same end. They all are the same kind of thing. Drinks to accompany your chicken wings and your giant bag of french fries. That's what this is. Stand there, make your choice either way. Christmas does not fit that category. It doesn't fit that category. It doesn't fit that narrative. Christmas is either true or false. And if it is true, it's true for everybody. And if it's false, it's false for everybody. So it's not way back when some Christians got together and came up with this cool story with some interesting characters and there was a star and a manger and lambs and some other things. And we're glad because we like this story. But we're no more glad than anyone with any other tradition or story. We just kind of like our story. Christmas is a declaration that God acted in history. That's the story. That's the claim that it makes for itself. That incarnation happened. That the one true and living God stepped into the flesh of mankind. That Jesus, that baby, is really Lord. And that because of that, our sins are really forgiven. And our justification is really declared. And that is why. We are merry. That is why we are glad. It is the objective reality of gospel grace and not the sentimental preference of a religious tradition. This is why Christians take apologetics so seriously and vigorously, right? It's not because we really want Christianity to be true and so we're going to figure some way to show that it is. It's because it is true. And that's wild, but we have seen it to be true, and we have thought it to be true and experienced it to be true. Apologetic says we're dealing with truth here. This has always been the way that the people of God have thought about their joy, not just a worked up thing, but a response to the action of God. The Lord has done great things. This is why we are glad. I'd love to talk more with anybody who would ever like to about apologetics and what we mean by the declaration of gospel truth as something that is true for everyone. But this text teaches us, as does all of Scripture, that there is a reality that leads to our joy. 
All right, so then let's finish with, what does that feel like if God acts for us and the mood of our church is joy? Cruz, can you help me to understand how that comes out of my hands if Christmas is all that Scripture teaches it to be? All right, here's how the psalm started. So we've done the center, now let's do the bookends. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Original context is the exile of God's people. Here was Jerusalem and Judah, and they were viciously attacked and imprisoned and marched from their home across the desert to the city region empire of Babylon exiled from their home, taken away against their will. Then the Lord acted in history, and they were freed up to return home, to go back home. And in that restoring of the city of God and that returning home, the psalmist pushes the people to sing. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. We never thought we were going to get home. And then all of a sudden, we were there. The biggest exile in my life was four years of college in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It felt like someone had forcibly removed me from Boston and stuck me in this awful foreign land. The day that I graduated, May 1994, five or six, they gave me the diploma, I got on the plane, and I've never been back. (laughs) I was kissing the street in front of 52 Woodward Street in Everett when I got back, because I never knew if I would make it. Joy returning from exile. How does he describe that joy? What's the word that he used? We were like those who dream. In other words, this is too good to be true. Has anyone ever experienced joy like that? This can't be true. I remember the first day that I ever saw Grace with my eyes. She was coming to church, and my friend Kristen had prepped me for it. She just said, hey, I'm bringing my friend Grace to church. I hope you like her. I like the name already, right? Grace is just an awesome Bible kind of name. And I was like, wow, man, I wonder what she'll be like. I will never forget the day when she walked in the back doors with Kristen into the church. It was like a dream. I remember going, no way. Man, I hope that's Grace, whoever she is. Dark eyes and long, dark hair, and she was stylish. And then I met her. And she was quiet and soft-spoken and mature. And I was like, this cannot possibly be true. This girl has to like me. She has to like me. Stupefied grin. Can't be. Do you feel that joy? All right, let me give you another example. Do we have any Lord of the Rings fans in here? Who has watched the movie but never read the book? Will you admit that to us? Who's that? Okay. Who has both watched the movies and read the books? Both. Okay. Who's the fundamentalist who says, I've never watched the movies because they could never live up to the books. I've only read the books. Do we have any complete Tolkien freaks in the house? 
Okay, so do you know the scene at the end of the movie when Frodo and Sam are clawing their way to Mordor together? In the movie, it takes a little while. In the book, this is like 10 pages of really slow, painful movement. At some point in the crawl toward Mordor, Sam realizes something very depressing. Uh, It's being written from his point of view. You know how books allow that to happen beautifully. And he realizes, we're never going home. I'm never going to see the Shire again. We don't even have enough food to maybe even get to the volcano. But even if everything goes perfectly right and we destroy the ring, he realizes we're never going home. There's no way to make the return journey. As you know, in the book, they get to the mountain and the ring gets destroyed, that crazy scene where his finger is bitten off and Gollum falls into the fire and Frodo and Sam escape and they are lying on a giant rock that is floating down the stream of lava and they know this is it. We're dead. It's over. We're dying on this rock. And then... In the book, if you read this, should I read it to you? I don't know, you feel like you're in Lord of the Rings, Red? Okay, I'm going to give you one sentence. I'm sorry about this, but you've got to feel the word in there. They know that they're dead. It's completely over. You know what happens in the movie, right? Here comes the eagles. Okay, forgive me for the pronunciation of these crazy eagle names. Side by side they lay, and down swept Guahir, the king of the eagles, okay? And down came Landrovel and Meneldor the Swift. And in a dream, not knowing what fate had befallen them, the wanderers were lifted up and borne far away out of the darkness and the fire. Everybody feel that? It was like a dream. There was no possible escape. But like in a dream, suddenly they're being pulled away to safety. If I read the next two pages to you, you would see this beautiful scene where they wake up in the place where the elves live. I forget the name. And they cannot believe what has happened. Impossible. And there is laughter and there is joy. Does everyone feel that? It's no surprise that Tolkien would write these words, right? He was a strong Christian whose writing was shaped by the words of Scripture. Okay, if that one didn't do it for you, let me give you one more illustration so that you cannot miss this, and I think everyone in here will get this one. Does everyone remember the 2015 Super Bowl with six seconds to go when the game was totally finished and over? There was no possible, possible way for the Patriots not to lose that game. All the Seahawks needed to do was go two yards and they had the most vicious pit bull of a running back in the NFL. The game was over. It was, they were dead. It was done. They were never winning that Super Bowl. Do you remember Brady on the sidelines with his head down, just buried in his things, like unable to watch? Then does everyone remember what happened next? So just this interesting play call, we'll call it that, and this impossible turn of events, and Butler intercepts the ball, and the Patriots are going to win the game. 
Do you remember Tom Brady's reaction on the sideline? Anybody? So how would you define that? Like a little, like screaming, shouting, joyful, merry, all of those words shaken up together and put on exponent. You remember seeing that in his face? That's what this is. The psalmist says it like this. We got home by the grace of God. And it was too good to be true. And our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. This is the default mode of the people of God. The Lord has acted to bring us home. It's, it's impossibly true that our sins could be forgiven, but they have been. It's like a dream. And so the definitive mood of the life of our homes and our souls and our church is that kind of wild, exuberant, shouting, laughing joy. This is why the psalmist then takes the singing and in the back end, after the center, he turns it to a prayer. This gets to be our prayer. It's happened before, Lord, and now he says in a prayer, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Restore our fortunes again, O Lord. That's a prayer. You've acted this way for us before. We need you to keep working this way for us. The Negev was that very, very dry land between Judah and Babylon. Mad Max and the Fury Road, that kind of a desert scene. Just nothing grows out there. Nothing's ever going to grow out there. 99% of the time, if you were to walk that road, this Negev, you would not see anything to be happy about, any life at all, nothing green. But what happens when the rains would suddenly sweep into this area? All of a sudden, in a minute, everything would change dramatically. We are talking rivers that would flow, streams that would sprout up, frogs and salamanders and slip and slides and kayaks. All of this is going on on what had been an impossibly dead, dry desert road. In its original context, this is a prayer that the Lord would bring more of the exiles back along that road Would you restore some others to the joy that we have right now? But this is also a universal prayer for all of the people of God, that God would revive us again and again and again and again because of the objective reality of his grace and his action for us. This is why the psalm ends here with these words. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, will come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Okay, as I've gotten ready to preach on joy during Christmas, I am not naive to the fact that Christmas is also one of the saddest times of year for people. Uh, If you're young, you may not know this to be true, but a lot of people connect Christmas 
with loss and with pain and with sorrow because Christmases of their youth with family that they adored are not the same anymore. Often people had years of marriage around Christmas season and now the marriage is broken and they're not really looking forward to the holidays. Sorrow is a reality during Christmas time. What this psalm compels us to, if we would lean towards sorrow in this season is, hey, that's okay, but don't give up on the truth of Christmas. Don't give up on the grace of God. Don't give up on the hope of the gospel. Even in sorrow, keep sowing. Keep believing. Keep walking the paths of obedience and faith and worship, knowing that God has acted and will act for our dreamy joy. This is why my counsel to anyone who would be depressed in the holidays is to hold them and love them, but also to encourage them, hey, keep sowing. Move yourself to sing those Christmas carols as hard as that may be. Gather with the people of God around wreaths and Christmas songs. Put up the Christmas tree by faith. Get those gifts ready to give. Share those meals. Don't deny that invitation. Go, be, pursue, sow. Because God always spins back joy if we stick with believing, repenting, living by faith. All right, so if this is like a real fun, awesome Christmas, my word to you today is make sure that you remember where the ground is. It's in the grace of God to you in Christ. And if this is a sorrowful Christmas, we love you and we're for you, and we would encourage you to say, Father, you know I don't have the joy, and I actually have a lot of sorrow, but set my heart to keep pursuing all that you would have for me in Christ, and he will meet you in that place. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for your grace to us in Christ. Thanks for the words of this psalm. The Lord has done great things for us. We're glad. All the other moods that attend our life, Lord, at the bottom, we're just, we're good. We've been loved by God. Our eternity is Fort Knox secure. The mood that is coming of joy is pulled back into real time right now. Would you help Seven Mile to be a place of gladness? Hear my prayer for that and answer. Amen. Amen.